So hello and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 48 and we're going to do an update now on COVID-19. So we recorded an episode back at the end of February with Dr. Alistair McConaughey, who's lead clinician for infectious diseases in Glasgow. And at that stage, the world was a very different place. Um, We were able to do a podcast in the same room. Uh, We're now doing it remotely, which is a first for St Mungo's. And actually, Dr McConaughey, you were just telling me there that when we recorded that last episode, you actually hadn't seen a confirmed case, and things have changed quite considerably uh, in that time. So you you mentioned in that podcast the lack of familiarity and predictability, and we weren't sure how severe a disease was. So six weeks on, how has your opinion of it changed, and what do we now know? Yeah, it's interesting. There's, it's the difference between reading lots of other people's descriptions of an illness in the in the medical literature and then actually seeing it and experiencing it with patients. I think the first thing to say is I've it's a nasty virus. Um, you know, I, previously I may have been slightly um, more of the view that you know it's a coronavirus. It doesn't seem to to be that severe for the majority, and you know. It's more its effects on healthcare systems, and I, and I, I think that is still true to an extent. I, I think the vast majority of people clearly get a very mild disease, but in those who get severe disease, it's severe. It's it's a very oxygen hungry illness. It um, can really very rapidly progress in in some people. It's clearly very very contagious, um, you know. And I think I think it's to be dealt with. I've, I've developed a respect for it, shall we say, a healthy respect for it as an illness um, rather than anything else. Yeah, because I remember uh, at the last episode, I asked you what you feared the most and you said influenza was still what you feared the most. Is it creeping up to influenza levels in terms of, of how you perceive it now? Probably in in those individuals who get severe disease, yes. I mean, it's, it's clearly very severe in, in those who get severe disease, but still the, you know, the vast majority um, you know, likely over eighty percent of people will get very, very mild disease, and, and my my view of it clearly is skewed by the fact that I'm seeing the the most severe end of the severe end of the spectrum, and we have no concept of what the denominator is out there now in terms of the general public and who who's had it, who hasn't, and and what sort of severity of illness they've had. Um, I think in terms of flu, does it scare me more than flu? No, not particularly. Um, I think if I still suspect that if I caught it, I would get a reasonably mild disease. Um, so I think, you know, I think flu is in, in and of itself, uh, you know, an equally, if not more severe disease when it when it happens. But but this can really be quite severe, you know, and multi multi system as well. Um, it's very interesting. We'll come to that in a wee bit. We'll, we'll go in a kind of sequential manner and we'll just try and pick out some of the things that have changed or the, the additional knowledge we now have in the past six mm-hmm. weeks. So let's start right back in the community. So we'd mentioned, I think, uh, when we spoke before, we were admitting all potential cases or, or, or positive cases, regardless of how sick they were. And we talked about maybe moving to a flu-like management where well people, um, even positive, stay at home. So can you kind of summarise the community management What and what is the current recommendation? Yeah, so when we spoke the last time, we were very much in this kind of projected containment phase of the illness. 
um, whereby the modelling would have suggested that if you could get the vast majority, over 90% of people who actually have COVID in the community and you can trace all their contacts and you can isolate them, then you can significantly slow down spread of the virus through, through society, through the community. And there was always going to come a tipping point when you have clear, established community transmission and then, and then that kind of approach no longer becomes tenable. Um, and we probably reached that point around about the time everybody was coming back from the skiing holidays in Italy. I think it's quite clear, you know, the epidemiology into the UK has, I mean, clearly it has been from China, but probably more so, uh, more so from, from Italy and, and Central Europe. Um, and we reached that tipping point such that it was just no longer viable. We were, you know, we were admitting positives. We had um, lots of people in hospital with it. They were by and large actually very well, but they were being kept in hospital until they had negative swab results and then allowed to, you know, to discharge back to the community. But once you start hitting big numbers, that that's just crazy because then you're in a situation where you're, You've, certainly from a secondary care point of view, you are filling your hospitals up with well people and then the sick people are starting to come in. And that's kind of what then leads to the situation where we are at the minute. And I think flu is a good is a good analogy. You know, the majority of people with COVID are going to be fine. So, yep, stay at home, isolate yourself, try and prevent transmission to others. Be aware that if you start to become dyspneic um, or if you've got persistent symptoms particularly at day seven and beyond of illness then get back in contact with healthcare services and you probably need assessment so that and that's where we're at at the minute so it's actually very well set up primary care and um, people who who are sitting at home who have symptoms if they are concerned they will phone nhs 111 they will then usually have a telephone consultation with the gp or an ANP in primary care and if they feel that they need to be reviewed, they can come up to a community assessment centre, so-called CAC, um, where they will be assessed in primary care. And then if there's any concern, they would then be referred to hospital. Most hospitals in Scotland will have instituted their, their flu pandemic uh, um, plans that usually have primary care's entrance into secondary care being a thing called SATA. Um, which is an assessment in um, and triage area. We've got one at the QE. I know that SATA's and other hospitals in GGC. And we are seeing people who are referred up to ourselves. Clearly, we can do more investigations. We can um, do chest x-ray. And up until the last couple of weeks, we were probably discharging the majority of people we were seeing. I would suggest over the last couple of weeks, that discharge rate is dropping. And admissions are, are going up. And that's what you'd expect because you've got people who are sitting at home for longer with illness before they then present to hospital. Um, but I think the way that um, the way that uh, the way that we're managing it is to really try and keep people away from places like the emergency department and try and streamline COVID admissions through. But you know, people will will still pitch up at all the front doors to hospitals. Yeah, well, what we found recently is we're probably a little bit calmer than we expected to be at this stage. So what, and this is Scotland now I'm speaking about, um, clearly there are places in the rest of the UK that are struggling, that have, 
you know, reached a stage maybe two or three weeks uh, beyond us. So what is your overall perception of the UK? Clearly the numbers are fairly alarming. I think we have death rates, you know, to match, if not worse than Italy at its peak. Um, but yet there are places in the UK which are clearly behind. So is social distancing working for some? What's your overall perception of the UK's kind of management and, and where are we at? What should we expect in the next few weeks? So, so I have to say, I, I think overall the way in which our governments, and I mean both London and Edinburgh, have managed this, I think they've done well. I say that apolitically, given the political makeup of both governments. I think they've done well. I think they've managed it well. They've been very clear uh, with a very clear purpose. Um, I think London clearly was really in trouble in a, in a kind of almost like a Northern Italy type of way, the amount of transmission, the amount of cases they had in, the way in which they were filling up their critical care beds. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was that transmission in London, which really wasn't reflected elsewhere in the UK, which led to the, the so social isolation kind of policy and the stay-at-home uh, policy. I think in terms of London, clearly there's going to be a less immediate impact from that just because of the amount of community spread they had. But I do think that that has probably come in at about the right time for the rest of the UK. I think in Scotland, it was probably fortuitously rather than anything else, perfect timing. And and I, I think what we are now seeing is a steady um, stream of patients presenting with COVID. But we're at the stage where Certainly, we can admit these people to general wards. We have capacity. We're able to manage the numbers. Um, and critical care is filling up, um, but not too quickly at the minute. The, the, challenge, the challenge is that certainly from a kind of ID wards point of view, we are discharging lots of patients with COVID on a daily basis. So we're, we can create capacity to deal with what's coming into us. I think it's a bit more of an unknown in critical care because it's very clear that these patients require ventilation really for quite prolonged periods of time. And, and I, I can see critical cares filling up unless we're able to get people off ventilators um, soon, but it's too early to, to really see that. Well, we'll come to some of the kind of more advanced uh, stuff in a minute, but let's go back to some of the basics. So there's been a lot of talk around PPE, uh, there's been some changing thoughts. I know there's still a kind of feeling that the protection is inadequate. Um, there seems to be conflicting reports. It's hard to know what to believe about the, the degree of aerosolization of, of um, the, the virus and whether the standard kind of surgical masks are sufficient. Anything you'd like to say about PP um, with six weeks of extra experience? Yeah, so, uh, so for the record, I think the PPE that we're using is adequate. Um, and I will qualify that statement. I think as a doctor who practices in a form of medicine that involves wearing personal protective equipment, I accept the fact that what I'm doing with PPE is reducing the risk to me, not to zero, but reducing the risk to me. But I also accept that the other side of that coin is that the more extensive the PPE I wear, the less care I am able to give the patient I am seeing in PPE. So for example, looking after patients with viral hemorrhagic fever, 
and the, the very high level of PPE that you wear when you do that, there's really very little you can do with the patient when you're in with the patient. Um, you can't auscultate the chest, you can't fully examine them. Um, patients having seizures in front of you, it's very difficult to manage when you're in full PPE. These are really, really challenging clinical encounters. And therefore, the PPE has to be proportioned against the care that the patient needs. The other thing to say about PPE is the more complicated you make PPE, the more complicated it is when you take it off after that patient encounter. And taking off your PPE or doffing is actually the highest risk time when it comes to wearing PPE. It's not when you're in the room. Um, it's when you take it off. And therefore, the more complicated you make it, you're actually increasing your risk. Um, and, and I'm not sure that that nuance is really being explored um, with individuals who seem to want to wear respirator level PPE when they're not doing things with patients that require that level of PPE. And the same goes for full length gowns and eye protection and hair nets and booties and all these other bits and pieces that people want to add on. I get people's anxiety about it, but it's not as clear cut as I want to be most protected, so I want to wear all this stuff. So let's look at the illness. It is a droplet spread illness, large droplets, and therefore a surgical mask, a pair of gloves, and a plastic apron will be perfectly adequate for the day-to-day -day care of patients. And added to that, if the patient's coughing and they can tolerate it, put a face mask on the patient because that will stop the vast majority of droplets coming from that patient. So it's not, it's not aerosol spread. Um, so I think that's perfectly adequate. It's not really until you start doing aerosol generating procedures. Now, the list of that has increased, but it's not really until you start doing that that you require a higher level of mask. And what do these masks do? What is it that an FFP3 or an N95 mask do? Well, their pore sizes are smaller and therefore they will filter out the smaller aerosol particles. N95 will filter out 96, 97% and FFP3 will filter out 99%. Not much difference in reality. So you have to be very clear that you're doing an aerosol generating procedure. Plus, if we accept that there is not an infinite amount of this resource, and therefore you have to wear the PPE that is appropriate to your clinical work. Because you know what? If we all decided we all wanted to wear respirator level PPE, then the people working in ITU who are tubing folk and changing ET tubes and CPAPing people doing these really high risk um, aerosol generating procedures, well, they're not going to have the right PPE for their clinical area because everybody else has demanded it. And therefore, there's a responsibility. And so I, I get that people are anxious about this. I do truly understand it. But I think, I, I think we have to assess that risk in relation to proper rational thought. And I think that's really difficult. Um, so I was wondering... If anyone has had any thoughts about the risks um, to health professionals away from the patients. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, we, we obviously work in, in rooms that can't be changed in size. You know, there are limitations to how much we can socially distance at work. 
we clearly have to work in teams in certain moments, but even away from that, when we're typing our notes or, or doing general work in the department, it's very hard to maintain a two-meter distance. Um, and I was wondering, has anyone had a thought about the risks of healthcare workers just in the interactions away from the patients? Is it actually, are healthcare workers mostly getting it from patients or, or could they be getting it from the general interactions away from the patients? Have you had any thoughts on that? I think it's a really important and a really, really good question. So, so the data from China would suggest that the vast majority of healthcare workers who are infected were infected not from their patients, but out in the community. And that data comes from large studies in Wuhan, in Beijing, in Shanghai, where they showed that the viruses healthcare workers were infected with were not the same as the viruses and the patients that they were looking after. And the theory is that in Wuhan, you had such high levels of community spread that people were catching, or healthcare workers were catching the illness out in the community, not at work. And you didn't see the same, anywhere near the same amount of healthcare workers infected in Beijing and Shanghai. And the key difference was there was not the same community spread as there was in Wuhan. So that's the data would suggest. So, so most healthcare workers probably do not catch the virus from their patients. I think the point about co-workers is really important. I think it is really difficult to socially distance from colleagues at work. I don't think we have been great at it up until now. Still seeing a lot of folk sitting around together. I think that has changed recently. And of course, the, the PPE guideline change that came in last week on Thursday last week has now suggested that when we are all on a ward that contains patients who may or do have COVID, then we wear a face mask for the entirety of that clinical session. So I've done a ward round this morning. I put a face mask on when I walked onto the ward. I kept that face mask on between patients. I saw all my patients, which included COVID and a few non-COVID patients. And then I took the face mask off when I left. Now, that was introduced primarily, I think, to try and simplify PPE um, so that you're on a ward. You don't have to think about whether the patient might or might not have it. You just wear it. You wear the face mask. It's also done to try and conserve stocks of face masks because um, you just keep the same one on for the clinical session. And not only that, it's probably safer because you're touching your face less because you're not taking masks on and off. But I'm sure, and this has not been said, but I'm sure one of the considerations was on a ward round, you're in close proximity to other people. And if you're all wearing masks, that will reduce the spread amongst healthcare workers. So I've not seen any data on it, but I'm sure it's an issue. I think we are at risk of catching this from our colleagues or when we are not at work, because when we see patients, we're careful. So I, I think it's a good point. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of testing, when we last spoke, you were... You know, you, you felt it was a very reliable test, um, but there has been some recent um, concern that there have been potentially false negatives. People that seem, or patients that seem to be, you know, clinically COVID nineteen, but were coming back with negative tests. A any any thoughts on the reliability of these tests? Yep. Um, so I think the actual test itself is very good. It's very sensitive, and I would evidence that. Um, I said at the start of the podcast that we had patients who we were admitting patients with COVID initially, and we were doing daily nose and throat swabs on them every day. 
and you can see them staying positive, gradually reducing at low level positives and then going away. And that you didn't get intermittent positives and negatives in those individuals. But of course, we were doing the swabs when we saw them and we were doing them properly. So the actual test itself is exquisitely sensitive. I have no doubts about that. The issue is how the swab was taken. So a throat swab has to be right to the back of the throat, right down in the tonsillar bed. And a nasal swab has to be right to the back of the nose, kind of eye-watering back of the nose swab. If you just do a quick wipe around someone's mouth with a swab and call it a throat swab, or if you wipe the, the outside of someone's nose or just inside the nostril and do a nostril swab, you're going to get a false negative. So it's how you do the swab. Um, and, and therefore, we spent a lot of time doing videos and posters to make sure that people are doing swabs better. And I think that has improved in terms of the test. So I think the test is good, but the question is, how was the swab done? So then the question comes, well, you've got a patient on the ward who's been swabbed at the front door, who's come up to the ward, who has bilateral reticular changes in their chest x-ray, and they might be a bit lymphopenic, but the swab's negative. What do I do? So in that situation, my totally pragmatic approach would be to do the swab again, but do it myself so that I know that it was done properly. Um, and I know I'll get a result back within 24 hours. I keep my barrier precautions up and may see. Um, but if I've got someone like I did today who has actually come in with alcohol withdrawal, for some reason they might someone's decided to swab them simply because they might have had a cough at some point, their bloods are fine, their chest x-ray is normal, then I believe that negative result because it's not the clinical picture. So it's looking at that result in the context of the clinical picture. And I think as the clinician, if you don't believe that swab result and you've not done it yourself such that you can be certain of it having been correct, done correctly, I think it is then reasonable to maintain precautions and repeat that swab. We have to be careful, however, not to just do second swabs in everyone because our testing facilities are already ready, overwhelmed. Um, they're doing a huge amount of tests. I think in Glasgow, they were up to almost 800 tests a day at one point. Um, and this is testing 24 hours. And the reagents that you use for these tests are clearly in short supply because everybody's doing so much testing. So we have to be careful as clinicians not to, to use overuse a limited resource. But I think it's reasonable if you've got someone that you have a high level of suspicion, you've got a negative result, Repeat that swab, but do it yourself and do it properly. So if you're going to do a test, do it right. Um, yeah. any, anything else we should know about any other blood or radiological tests? Anything's changed in the past six weeks that's helpful or otherwise? Yeah, I, CT scan's clearly very good at picking up um, changes. Probably chest x-ray is as well. We've had a, a few presentations um, that have come through the surgeons, people presenting with abdominal pain and have ended up in surgical receiving and admitted to surgery have then progressed to requiring a CT scan of their abdomen to assess that abdominal pain. The radiologists have said, let's just extend it up to their chest because there's a COVID pandemic. And I've had a couple of patients who've got bilateral ground glass changes on, on CT. Now, um, and some kind of non-specific adenopathy in their belly. And subsequently, when I've swabbed them, they're COVID positive in the back of their throat and up their nose. Now, they, I can think of two patients who had absolutely zero um, respiratory symptoms. 
But it's quite clear, I think, that you can get an enteritis with this. So it fits in abdominal pain, a bit of lymphadenopathy, but you still have changes. So I think, I think CT can be very useful in that regard. I'm not, absolutely not, advocating that we just use CT as a diagnostic test for COVID. I think that is totally inappropriate. But I think it is in people who present with certain presentations, unspecified fever, um, you know, particularly with abdominal pain, if you're going to scan their belly in that acute setting, it's maybe not unreasonable to suggest that you might extend up to the chest um, to look for, for changes. But of course, the diagnostic test is the swab. It's not the CT. Um, so I think one of the things that we've learned is the, is the kind of spectrum of illness and the way in which it can present and how the how the kind of imaging um, fits in with that. Okay, so that probably ties in nicely to a question we received on Twitter from Mags Bowie. Um, she was asking, are there are we aware of different types of symptoms of the disease? And I guess you've kind of answered that. Um, with regards to that particular case, do we believe that the abdominal pain was secondary to the COVID? Or, and what Mags asks, are there people... Are there patients, sorry, being found coincidentally with COVID rather than presenting due to it? Yeah, good question. Good question. Because you've got so much in the environment. If you just swab people, are you going to find it? And the answer is probably yes. Um, I Personally, the, the patients that I've seen presenting with abdominal pain, I'm quite happy to call that a COVID enteritis. We know that you can detect the virus in stool. Um, and it, it is a it is a presentation that's described. And the other presentations clearly this is a virus that infects older people um, avidly and will give you non-respiratory presentations in older people. So delirious old people with fever, um, without really much in the way of chest symptoms, although that may just reflect a difficulty in a listing um, a history that gives you these symptoms, but. Um, I think these individuals who are COVID positive, I am, I don't think it's unreasonable to put it put it down to kind of COVID pneumonia. They're often a bit hypoxic. They'll have chest X-ray changes. They have all the things that that can make people delirious. Um, but I think the GI presentations and the very non-specific presentations in older people would be the two that that would be the exceptions. But the vast majority of people are going to present with cough and fever and, you know, dyspnea and breathlessness. Now, just on that point, um, is there much more we know about the pathophysiology? There's, there's been some murmurs and, and we've seen patients actually uh, that fit with this, but it's been reported, you know, people will present, you know, they'll walk in, they'll be barely breathless, but they'll have saturations of 60 something percent. Um, now, there's been some murmurs recently that, that the, the virus is impacting the oxygen carrying capacity of haemoglobin. So it may not be just confined to the lung itself. Are we seeing any systemic effects or is there any other um, knowledge about the pathophysiology that, that, that is explaining these phenomena? Yeah, it's a fascinating illness, I have to say. So in terms of pathophysiology, what do we know? So what we do know is that probably the first seven days of illness is a kind of virological phase where you have infection, um, probably predominantly of type 2 alveolar cells um, with virus, and it's very much a viral phase. The next seven days, so day 7 to 14, 
some people, particularly those with more severe disease, who end up with um, um, issues with oxygenation, people have called it an immunological phase. So the theory being that you have some kind of cytokine-driven um, ARDS-type picture, but this really doesn't behave like typical ARDS, if you can define such a thing. So that's the kind of theory about the severe disease, and we know that the majority of people who go on to require mechanical ventilation um, will typically worsen at about day seven with dyspnea and then day 10 climbing oxygen requirements. So that's a very typical picture that we see. The people who present with non-respiratory symptoms tend not to do badly. In my experience, that's totally anecdotal. But in my experience, the people who present with the enteritis and what have you without particularly wild chest x-ray changes and without gas exchange problems tend to do okay. Um, there are a subset of people who can go off with COVID really, really quickly. So they, their oxygen demand ramp up quickly, and I mean literally within hours. Um, and there is a feeling that you get a myocarditis in some people and you can get a significant deterioration cardiovascularly and respiratory wise as a result of that and there's some evidence for that you see climbing troponin levels and what have you and um, the other feeling is that you probably there's probably a microembolic nature to severe disease as well you people are starting to report higher rates of pulmonary embolus in people with covid although i wonder if we just looked at anybody with respiratory infection you would find that anyway we certainly see it in tb we see it in pneumococcal pneumonia as well and it may just be that people are getting cts who are finding it um, but certainly, embolic disease seems to be an associated phenomenon, and also pos possibly kind of other microembolic kind of events systemically as well. So I think an effect on blood vessels, an effect on circulating cells, I think is a perfectly reasonable theory. The oxygen carrying one is is very much a theory based on some observations, which may or may not be you know borne out to be true i think we're discovering uh, more and more as we go i think when when this all began certainly when we last spoke there, there was clearly this perception that it was a disease of older people yet there was a few kind of younger doctors in china and then a few younger patients in italy and it seems i don't know if i'm wrong with this it seems in the uk that we've experienced a greater number of younger people dying with this disease um, is that the case? And, and what would your explanation be for that? I mean, we look at Italy and we see people over 100 surviving and getting discharged from hospital, yet we're seeing people in their 20s and 30s. Do you think there's some underlying genetics or physiology that, that, that put, puts people at risk? Do we, could the disease be revealing underlying health problems that we didn't know about? Um, what, what's your kind of take on, on, on the kind of younger deaths in the UK? So the first thing to say is obviously to be careful of observational data and, and perception. I think um, I'm not sure there is any hard data to suggest that um, we have higher rates of young people um, with higher mortality in the UK than elsewhere, at least not, not anything properly controlled. It does happen. And I suspect that in a lot of these cases, we may well be seeing underlying illnesses being highlighted or probably more to the point we don't know 
what underlying illnesses they had because a lot of these reports are in popular press and you know where clearly people aren't going to advertise medical history so i think we have to be slightly careful of that in my experience would be that yep seeing young people with it but they tend to be fine i have to say um i've not sent anyone under the age of certainly under the age of 50 um to itu i know others have i think what is very clear is that people who do not do well with covid um older people over the age of 75 um for whatever reason um clearly do badly obesity if you are big and have a high bmi you really would appear to have a poorer outcome diabetes is clearly strongly associated vascular disease is associated and whether diabetes and vascular disease are surrogates of each other hypertension is strongly associated these are the things that that seem to be correlating with poor outcomes and and if we look at our hdu population and our itu population that would be borne out certainly in the west of scotland we seem to have higher mortality or at least account for a larger proportion of the mortality in Scotland. Um, I strongly suspect that represents the kind of West of Scotland phenotype um, where we have very high levels of of these comorbidities and associated with levels of um, kind of uh, deprivation scoring that that you often don't see elsewhere in Scotland. And I suspect that there is a huge, huge influence there. The other people that seem to do badly from this are men. Um, I think it's it's a it's a bad time to be a man and a good time to be a woman. And and why why that is, I don't think we fully understand. I guess men have much higher rates of vascular disease and diabetes and all the rest of it. Um, so I think the the kind of interplay of these things are interesting, and I suspect we're going to have an awful lot of of data. There's there's several very very large international um, disease characterizing um, collaborations, Isaric being the one that we are involved in, um, you know, and these these collaborations are collecting data on hundreds of thousands of patients. So I'm sure that all of this will come out in a proper scientific way. Can I ask you also about drug interactions? Now we mentioned before there was some murmurs around the ACE. Uh, two receptors and, and there was a theoretical kind of perhaps ACE inhibitors may be beneficial, then it swung the other way. They could be harmful. Anything you want to say about that? And also I'll add in ibuprofen as well. That, that made the news quite a lot. What's your thoughts on those? Yeah, it's interesting that the ACE inhibitor story went full circle, didn't it? I, and the same ibuprofen, I don't think we know. <laughs> we just do not know um, is the honest answer. I think the ACE inhibitor thing started with the Italians reporting high rates of people on ACE inhibitors who were requiring mechanical ventilation, and therefore they were concerned that in the context of knowing that the virus used the ACE2 receptor as one of its um, cell entry receptors, there was concern that these drugs were increasing um, increasing the risk of these individuals. But of course, being on an ACE inhibitor is a pretty good surrogate for vascular disease diabetics get put on ACE inhibitors, people with renal disease get put on ACE inhibitors. So, you know, it, it's an example of concerns about observational data. You know, and if you've got 
NYHA two or three or four heart failure and someone comes along and says, right, we're going to stop your ACE inhibitor now because we're worried about COVID, you're probably more likely to come to harm from your heart failure than you are from any risk of COVID. Um, I know that individuals with hypertension have kind of largely been given the option to switch away from ACE inhibitors to an alternative antihypertensive, but I think the honest answer is we, we just don't know. And it's the same ibuprofen, you know, people on ibuprofen or people who take non-steroidals, are we just selecting out you know, a, a particular group of individuals. I don't think we know. And anything regards treatments, we'd, we'd spoken about the fact there was no uh, definite treatments. Um, are we any further on? Uh, clearly, one we didn't speak about was hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. So anything you want to say about that and any other uh, potential developments in, in the treatment front? So probably the important thing to say about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine at the outset, is that there was a, an MHRA statement a couple of weeks ago that says that these agents should not be given to COVID patients out with the context of a clinical study. Um, and they certainly, I, that statement came out because these agents generated a huge amount of press interest, no less than Donald Trump, um, to, to suggest clinical efficacy. Um, and there was real concern that these agents have toxicity cardiac toxicity principally, which ties in with COVID having potential cardiac toxicity, um, and that harm could be done. So we are using them. Um, we're using them within a clinical study. Um, we've got several clinical studies ongoing, looking at hydroxychloroquine, looking at Kaletra, which is an antiretroviral therapy, um, looking at chloroquine, looking at an antiviral called remdesivir, uh, which is a, an, an Ebola drug that appears to have in vitro activity. Um, looking at immuno, other immunomodulatory agents, tocilizumab is the other agent that is a, um, a small cohort from Southeast Asia that suggested people who are in that immunological phase of illness um, might benefit from tocilizumab um, to improve the outcomes. I think we don't know, but there's a huge amount of clinical trials going on and we're actively recruiting people to these multi-centre studies. So again, it's data that will come out in the wash at the end. And presumably they're all blinded, so we're not going to know for quite some time, are we, the results they, of any of these? They're not blinded, actually. They're, so um, they are randomised, um, randomised centrally. Um, they, I think they are blinded to those who are crunching the numbers as opposed to they're not blinded to the clinicians. And if you, and now we're not saying people go on gut feeling here, but if you had a gut feeling, what would you, would you have a strong suspicion that any of these are likely to, to, to be the most effective or are you just going to wait and see? Okay. So strongly preface this again by saying it's the gut feeling. <laughs> um, I think, I think remdesivir is a good drug for the virological phase. Um, I think early in disease, um, I think giving an antiviral such as remdesivir seems sensible. Um, and, and certainly if I had it and if I was offered that drug, I would, I would take that. Um, I think later on in disease, I think tocilizumab looks promising. But again, you know, these are pretty heavy duty immunomodulatory medications that you're giving to people. Um, I think it, that really needs to be looked at properly in a clinical study. As, as I think there might actually be some data for tocilizumab in the context of pulmonary fibrosis anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think antiviral-wise, probably remdesivir, if I was given an option. 
Anything else around treatments? Um, and would you feel comfortable speaking about ventilation? I know, as you mentioned earlier, um, they're not behaving like traditional ARDS patients. And I know I've heard uh, intensivists have been discussing changes such as earlier fluids and less PEEP and a few other things. Anything you'd like to say about that or any other kind of treatments? Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm an inf- just an infectious diseases physician, so I'm not sure I have the full understanding of physiology that these guys do. But um, I think, you know, I can't really comment on ventilation, but a few takeaway messages, I guess, as a non a non-respiratory expert as a non-ventilation expert. Um, what are my what are my takeaways? My takeaways and data so far are that we had previously been running these people a wee bit dry, um, because of that being a way to prevent ARDS. I think there's now treatment experience that would suggest that that's probably not a good thing because by the time they get to ITU they've got renal impairment and they're needing CBVH and um, you know you're just adding other organ failure in so now we should actively be just trying to run people uvolemic not over not under trying to hit that that kind of sweet spot Um, and that you know that's going to improve their pulmonary perfusion pressures and all the rest of it Um, Oxygen needs to be carefully managed. It's it's an oxygen hungry disease, but but I think we're appreciating that you can you can probably can give too much oxygen. Um, so the kind of oxygen targets that we've been aiming at, kind of ninety to ninety four percent, suddenly seem conservative given what we're used to targeting with a new score. But actually, probably um, are a good thing in this um, illness, trying to minimise VQ mismatch, etc. And then the third thing is proning. Um, so we've heard a lot in the ITU context of, of managing people proned, um, but increasing feeling that patients should be proned in other contexts as well. So on the ward, for example, where I've got COVID patients whose oxygen demands are going up, I'm getting them to lie in the front, I'm proning them. Um, and anecdotally, that improves their oxygenation and I know that's they've been doing that in London as well and they've also been doing it with CPAP as well to try and improve so I think proning is an interesting development but and how long do you prone them for to explain why (laughs) yeah how how long do you prone them for is it just uh, until they can tolerate it no more or is it a set length of time or yeah I mean it's totally unscientific but I try and get people to lie in their bellies for as long as they can okay do you mind if I ask you about something else which which probably didn't get a lot of um chat in in the beginning but seems to be increasingly now people are identifying the the huge psychological challenge of the end of life care or 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 the 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 inability to have family present and and there was that sad case of the young boy who died recently and without family presence so that that's a huge psychological burden i don't think we understand the impact that that will have in the long term now with someone who's used to PPE, someone who's used to, to, to significant illness, I presume that you've experienced end-of-life care in a kind of controlled environment. What's your thoughts around that? Are we being too um, strong? I mean, th- there's a lot of people saying, you know, th- these family members have probably already been exposed. You know, they've been living with some of these patients. You know, is the potential harm psychologically outweighing the benefit of keeping them distant in that moment i I don't know i I don't know if you have a strong opinion or you've had experience to to help you answer that 
Yeah, I I think one of the most challenging aspects of this disease are the discussions that we're having with patients and relatives and carers around the prognosis, the ability to ventilate them, or, or rather whether ventilation would actually benefit them or not. Um, and trying to have those discussions in the context of wearing PPE um, and speaking to to relatives on the phone. I have to go and do it this afternoon for one patient that we've just discussed at our escalation MDT. And I think I think it's it's really, really, really challenging. Um, personally, I have been letting one family member sit with people who are dying as long as they are asymptomatic. Um, because I think that's important. And I think if that individual, if that family member or relative accepts that there may be a risk to them by doing it um, and they are happy to do it, then I have personally have no difficulty defending that decision um, in whatever forum. The difficulty comes when that individual then becomes symptomatic. So one of my patients who unfortunately passed away through the night last night, his daughter had been sitting with him, but she then became symptomatic and therefore had to stay at home. Um, and and I think I think that's that's really really difficult um, and challenging. Um, the other issue is when you have multiple family members, all of whom wish to sit with the patient, and that can't happen. I think it needs to be one individual. It has to be limited. We've stopped visiting to hospitals for very good reason. The government advice is you do not leave your house unless it's good reason. I think your dad dying is probably quite good reason. Um, but clearly that should be minimised. And therefore, we all know that family dynamics can sometimes be quite challenging. And therefore, you need to try and identify an indiv- a single individual. And it's, so not just, it, and it's not just one at a time. It's the same person is the only person that can come day after day. It's not like... It, indeed. And I think, I think people just need to accept that this is a pragmatic answer to what is a really difficult situation. Um, the other thing that is challenging is, is the end-of-life discussions. Um, there's been a lot of stuff in the media recently about people not getting ventilators because of their age. That is not true. That is categorically not true. And, and I'm quite disappointed that the press have run with this and have allowed, and, and a lot of people who advocate for older people have allowed themselves to be sucked into that. Um, we are not allocating ventilators on the basis of someone's age, but we are making a decision as to whether people would benefit from mechanical ventilation based on their comorbidity, based on the acuity of their illness, based on their frailty score, based on a whole number of metrics which we would use for any patient when you're making a decision about mechanical ventilation. But these are really difficult, difficult discussions. Um, and, you know, we know we know what our practice is like. We've got folk in their early 50s who are incredibly frail, um, who, you know, who are not going to do well in mechanical ventilation. Um, so we've got a, a daily escalation MDT that we all sit and discuss any patients in whom there is any dubiety as to whether they should be for mechanical ventilation. Um, and it's, it's really difficult and the press stuff is not helping. Um, the one thing I would say is that the majority of patients that I've seen who clearly would not benefit from mechanical ventilation 
have usually had these discussions already with their family. So patients come pre-prepared. And then when you start having these discussions, usually it'll open with, I've already discussed this. And um, it's interesting. I think I think the, the public get it. Um, and it's these are really, really challenging, challenging um, discussions. It's probably, in, in some ways, this whole experience has highlighted a lot of stuff that we are meant to be doing for every single patient that we maybe not be doing as well as we can because now we're having to do it. The PPE thing is one. You know, this is just flu PPE. Why are we not doing this every year for flu? We should be. The fact that we're not comfortable with it would suggest that we're not doing it every year for, for flu. And then the second is we should probably be having these discussions about ceilings of treatment and what patients do want and don't want if they deteriorate all the time for every single patient we admit, regardless of age, comorbidity, all the rest of it. But somehow we don't probably do that. Um, And this is forcing us to do that for pretty much the majority of our admissions. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very, very much for your time again. And uh, and thank you for all you're doing. And we'll and stay safe. We'll see you soon. Okay. Cheers. Thanks mate. very much. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.